0: I made the difficult decision not to seek re-election for mayor of Carmel in the 23 election cycle.
1: Jim Brainerd won't be on the ballot in 2023. Hanging up his career in public service, he's made an everlasting impact on Carmel over the past 27 years put the city in the national spotlight as the roundabout capital of the United States.
0: Traffic fatalities in the U.S. hit a 20-year high in the first quarter of the year. And in tonight's Eye in America, one Indiana city thinks they found a roundabout answer for that, and a number of other traffic woes. Here's CBS's Chris Van Cleve. Carmel, Indiana is sending drivers for a loop by design
1: and the maestro who orchestrated the -the state-of-the-art Palladium Concert Hall to Hamilton County. Mayor Jim Brainerd, a guy who still has a knack for playing the French horn, a visionary and change agent who has been the leader of the band, marching Carmel forward for nearly three decades. He's my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 91, hard to believe it, almost at episode 100 of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Jim Brainerd grew up in the tiny town of Bristol in northern Indiana, Elkhart County, the heart of RV country. He even worked in some of those trailer factories back in the day. Brainerd graduated from Butler with a degree in history and then moved on to Ohio Northern University where he earned his law degree. He's been the catalyst behind Carmel's transformation and tremendous growth since he took office in 1996. Population then, roughly 25,000. Now, more than 100,000 people call Carmel home. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Carmel Mayor Jim Brainer to the podcast this week. Uh, Mayor, thanks for joining me.
0: It's great to be with you, Gary.
1: You made some big news recently, announcing that uh, after seven terms, you will not be seeking re-election. I've got to ask you: you've been such a fixture, obviously, in Carmel and Central Indiana and our state. Has it sunk in yet? <laughs> that you—I mean, yeah. you've still.
0: Well, it was a long decision. It took a long time to make that decision, and and so it has sunk in. And I'm uh, pleased. You know, we set out to do some things. We got uh, got them done. Had a lot of fun doing it, and I'm looking forward to uh,
1: some other uh, challenges. Yeah, I want to ask you about that in a, in a bit. But as you thought through this, uh, and you have mentioned on several occasions that this, is, uh, this was a very difficult decision, why was it tough? I mean, seven, seven terms is a long time. Why was it a tough decision to not seek reelection?
0: Well, there's always more things one would like to see accomplished for the city. And then I stopped and thought about it. I thought, you know, I'm 68, I'd be 98 and still have some things I'd like to accomplish. <laughs> and I so I took that part out of the equation and thought about what I wanted to do and then it became a much easier decision. And you know, another factor is we have a good bench right now. We have good people on the city council. We have great department heads. And it's a nice time to turn it over. The ideas that we've promoted over the years uh, about city design, innovation, not being afraid to try new and different things, I think have permeated through the uh, community and I I feel very comfortable uh, Uh, in cities and going forward.
1: Yeah, you've been a change agent uh, without question. Uh, There in Carmel, uh, things have changed dramatically in so many ways. Population has increased exponentially. Certainly, the look and the feel and the vibe in Carmel is much different than it was when you you took office. As you think back on it, because there's been such dramatic change there, um, what was the thing? What was your thinking? what was the idea you had in your, in your head, you know, the vision that you wanted to make to make Carmel? What was it back then?
0: Well, in 1995, when I uh, stood for mayor in the primary for the first time, I knocked on thousands of doors and asked people what their hopes and dreams and aspirations were for the place they had chosen to make their home and start their businesses, raise their families. And I, I heard several themes and basically they all went back to we want a traditional city where we can walk places that have park systems that have great cultural venues we like downtown Indianapolis but it's a long way away we'd like to have our own downtown and neighborhood centers and so I was a history major at Butler for my undergraduate work and I started to think about the history of cities and did a lot of research and 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 it really was and it suddenly occurred to me we had knew how to build cities for people for centuries, and then we get over 25% car ownership for the first time after World War II, and we quit designing our cities for people and started designing them for cars. While we still need to accommodate cars, I I see the pendulum swinging back across the world, Ashley. It's like, okay, let's find places to store the cars and, and put them, but let's not design our cities for those cars anymore. Let's start designing them for people again. And that's what we did. We then looked at what are the legal and financial hurdles? You know, who goes for a romantic walk past the big box parking lot? <laughs> uh, how, how do we do better? You know, I talked to hundreds of people. So, you know, we've been over in Europe. We fly over. And it's great old cities, sit at the sidewalk cafe, visit the museums, the concert halls. Why can't we build cities like that? And, and so, you know, in talking with builders and developers we realize they build anything that they can make money at and they prefer to build things that they're proud of and their family's proud of. And we've so one by one, we, we learned what the financial and, and, and lending hurdles really were to building in a more traditional style. And then we started to look at the public-private partnerships that have been used in Indianapolis for years, starting with Dick Luger and Bill Hunnett and Steve Goldsmith. And we refined that process. And that's why today I think Carmel has a downtown, uh, mm-hmm. great cultural venues, uh, and great pedestrian. It's become a walkable, pedestrian-friendly city as well. Yeah,
1: that all sounds great. But, but getting there and actually doing it is, is a huge... Task and you and, and, and others in Carmel have obviously been very successful at it. It didn't come without hurdles, it didn't come without opposition. T- talk about that opposition and how you dealt with people who didn't uh, really see eye to eye with your vision for Carmel.
0: First of all, it's always important to listen to P- you know, as one of our former presidents said, listen harder when somebody disagrees with you. And we tried to do that, but you know, after listening, uh, sometimes one would change and make modifications but generally if we thought we were right and the data and research backed up our policies we uh, were fairly steadfast in continuing those policies uh and explaining them to the public unfortunately over 50 percent of the voters always agreed with us mm-hmm. i remember uh be more specific i remember when we we're proposing uh building the monon trail we had a lot of protesters I had one fellow, I remember, said I'd rather have a freight train in my backyard than a <laughs> bicyclist and uh, all sorts of silly things like that. You know, one of the things we did that was very controversial at the time, but important for the long-term fiscal health of the city, and, and I think community spirit as well, was that we wanted all of Clay Township to be part of the city of Carmel. It's about 50 square miles, double the size of the island of Manhattan. But when I became mayor, only 18 of those 50 square miles were in the city, the rest was unincorporated areas, part of the Carmel school system, part of the library district. And, and we were under contract with the township to provide many of the services such as fire and parks. But we uh, we said the entire area needs to be part of the city. So we did 56 annexations. You know, annexation's are bad, but um, we uh, persisted with that because we knew it was the right thing to do nobody talks about that anymore but because of that we've been able to to provide governmental services much more efficiently and have money left over to do a lot of the things that people seem to love
1: yeah you know this vision was uh, you know i think it's accurate to say uh, was bold was aggressive and in terms of the folks who who were a bit skeptical or perhaps opposed it. I know there are people in the city of Indianapolis who looked at Carmel and say, Hey, why, why do you need a, a downtown city center uh, with, with the arts and cultural attractions and the Palladium and all these, uh, all these venues for Carmel. We've got those in downtown Indianapolis. You're taking away from Indianapolis. What was that? What was that process like?
0: Well, I always tried to explain to people that thought that way that number one our competition is not Indianapolis or Greenwood or Fisher's it's Chicago and and Boston and LA and, and, uh, San Diego and places overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all one place here. And in essence, we're a neighborhood, big neighborhood, but still a, a series of neighborhoods within Carmel. And to the extent that we do things that, uh, are good and are good economically, we benefit the entire region. And secondly, Indianapolis, you know, you know, to, to, many leaders credit have built a lot of their economic development around initially amateur sports and then professional sports. And there had been somewhat of comparable, you know, when you started to contrast and compare to uh, pure cities across this part of the country in the South, there'd been a underinvestment in the arts. So that's one of the reasons we chose to focus our economic development around the arts. We we saw that as a niche that we could help fill in some gaps in the Indianapolis area, and I I believe uh, to this day we've done so.
1: Talk about uh, mayor, so much development we could we could talk about, but the you know the arts and design district, the Palladium, this this city center, and uh, the Midtown project, all those things that. Uh, uh, really are uh, pretty spectacular. That have changed the face of of Carmel. W- was there was there one project? Maybe unfair to ask you this, but one project that you feel was a catalyst for growth, or really has been kind of a, a standout in this in this whole process.
0: Well, I think getting the Palladium built—that's a building that will be here for thousands of years. Uh, I challenge anyone to find a building like it in the United States of that quality. There might be two or three. It's been built in the last couple of decades. Uh, it's a beautiful building and it's something that Carmel and in central Indiana hopefully will be known for for uh, literally uh, centuries and, and that of course has driven tr- uh, tremendous amounts of economic development. You know we took the art and design district Carmel you know was founded by the Quakers back in the 1830s at the end of World War II still 700 people it was a small poor farming community but we wanted to save that old area, but again, fifty square miles uh, today in Carmel, and and we knew that that little downtown area wasn't big enough to be a downtown. So we we formed the art and design district in that area, and then purchased about eighty eight acres and master planned our new downtown, the city center, which was anchored by the Palladium and our small smaller theaters, and then fortunately, midtown is uh, almost connected to the two at this point.
1: Did you ever think? Uh, because again, this this is a vision that took years to to do, very uh, ambitious. Was there ever a time when you thought, man, I don't know if this is going to work? I don't know if we're going to get to where I want to be. Was there ever that moment?
0: Oh, there were many moments of uh, questioning and, and uh, thoughts that something might not work. And of course, I have a list of mistakes we made too. I try not to talk about those too much, but we <laughs> you know what they are. But Edelow's believe that if we stick to the basics, don't try to be everything for everybody, but try to focus on a few key things that will be successful. And I, I think we were able to successfully do that. Uh, but yeah, of course, there were moments of self-doubt. Will we ever get this annexation completed? Will we ever be able to acquire 246 separate parcels to, to get the Monon trail built? Uh, those were hard projects at the time with lots of opposition.
1: Yeah. Got to talk about the roundabouts. Uh, now what? 130? Uh, uh, is that right? Roundabouts?
0: We're up to 146 as of, as of last week, Eric.
1: Wow. that's the mo- I think that's the most of any city in the country, right?
0: It is. I think uh, second might be, uh, oh, Bend, Oregon has 30 or 40 or so. And I think Colorado Springs has about 50 and there's some counties that are pushing 100, but nobody, yeah. uh, no one close to where we are as a city. What, what,
1: why, why were you so convinced? And certainly that's changed. And now you look throughout central Indiana, they're commonplace, certainly not to the extent as Carmel, but, but so many places uh, are putting them in and have those. What was, what was the real driver for you that made you think, hey, we need to, we need to go to this roundabout model?
0: Well, well, first of all, I'd seen them when I was in grad school in England and, you know, Not being a civil engineer and knowing nothing about civil engineering was probably helpful as I asked lots of questions, but I saw them work over there. And then years later, when I was elected mayor, you know, I I saw a statistic very early on that the average American spending two hours a day in traffic, that's the average. So there's people spending three and four hours too to make up for the ones that that walk to work in several larger cities. So I thought, we know this from the Romans, you know, they succeeded as an empire because they learned how to move goods and people around efficiently and safely. And it's the same thing for a city today, not that much has changed. So first of all, when I started to look at them, we realized the safety, you know, our fatality rate in Carmel is six the national average. It's also six, Indianapolis' average every year. Hmm. Indianapolis is running at 12 uh, fatalities per 100,000 people. We're at two, that's our five-year trailing average. Columbus, Indiana is pushing 30. Uh, fatalities per they're not that big but if you do the math and extrapolate out it's about uh, 30 per hundred thousand we haven't found any other city that's as safe but we also move 50 percent more cars per hour through a roundabout so we don't have to add all those lanes and that's the real fiscal savings it is you know a two-lane road from scratch nice road but still a two-lane road from scratch with curbs and sidewalks street lights is about 12 million dollars a mile Wow. So by adding those lanes, you know, we just took Rangeline range lane road, which is Westfield in Indianapolis, running north, south or downtown, and took it from five lanes to one lane each direction by taking out the stoplights and adding roundabouts. We're slowing down the speeds, which makes it safer for drivers and particularly pedestrians. But we're moving 8% more cars per hour than we were before the changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the roundabouts are much more efficient are better for the environment. Uh, people save a lot of money and gas every year. They drive a lot in Carmel. Not a lot per person necessarily, but cumulatively, it's, it's a lot of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm.
1: Mayor, as you look at your ability to uh, attract corporate uh, investment, uh, corporate headquarters, Carmel has long been uh, an attractive place for that. H- has that been something that uh, the improvements you have made, the vision you have had, has that helped improve? Prove your uh, your uh, your success rate, I guess, in going after corporate headquarters.
0: I believe it has. We're up to about 150 headquarters of national significance or international uh, reach. In some cases, when we started, it wasn't nearly that many. You know, we know that there's a worker shortage in the United States because of the baby boomers—you know, people my age, the other was still consuming a lot of services and going out to eat a lot and. But uh, because of that, you know, when I got out of college and grad school, I would have gone to anywhere for a job. Doesn't matter how bad the city, if it was the right job, I would have gone there. But I talk to young people today in the same situation, they choose to move to Denver or Carmel or Boston or Miami or San Diego or Paris. Then they look for the job and there's enough shortage of workers. They can get away with that. And so we have to build a place that has a high enough quality of life that we can attract, particularly the best and brightest. And that's important for economic development. It's also important for people on the other end of the economic strata that can't afford to travel to beautiful places. They have a right to live in a place that's also beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm minimum wage worker or slightly above that, I'm not flying to Paris to see what it looks like. But why can't the place that I have chosen to spend my life be a beautiful place, too? So there's lots of reasons to not only make a city work and work efficiently and safely, but be a beautiful place. And so we focused a lot. You know, I have a PowerPoint presentation and when I'm on the road speaking to other cities about what's happened in Carmel. And I show a picture of uh, Sandy Isle from Coronado Island. You know, it's 72 because it's always 72, and there's white, fluffy clouds and a blue sky and palm trees and mountain range, you know, framing <laughs> that beautiful skyline and water with sailboats. And, and I say, This isn't caramel. <laughs> and then I have a picture of Aspen Mountain at twilight, not caramel. Then I pop up a picture of a soybean field and say, This is our palette. But then I finish with a picture of the Eiffel Tower and say, They had the same palette lousy weather, no mountains and no oceans, and they did just fine. Hmm. We have to focus on building a beautiful, successful city. If we do that, we'll be able to recruit the best and brightest, which means the companies can hire who they need to hire here. They can expand here. And given our tax environment and just you know nice Hoosier hospitality, we can compete with anybody anywhere in the globe.
1: Hmm. And
0: we've been able to do that as a city. And I think we can continue to do
1: that. What do you you think, Mayor, uh, in terms of talent, because that's such a huge issue, obviously, for our state and for many other states as well. What's Indiana doing? Is Indiana doing the things? There's been a lot of focus on quality of place, quality of life projects all over the state of Indiana. State trying to get regions to work together as regions to do these projects. As you look at efforts to attract and retain talent, uh, what's your What's your observation, and are there things that the state could or should be doing any differently?
0: I think there's a tendency in Indiana to underinvest in quality of life. That would include schools, universities, public art, beautification of our cities. And we want to be fiscally responsible, but that's how we build uh, a tax base, that's how we attract good jobs to Indiana. Uh, we need to, I, I think, focus not just on more jobs, but really high quality jobs. Uh, and if we do that as a state and not be afraid, you know, I've gotten criticized for many years. Oh, you've spent all this money, you have debt. But as a result, our tax rate is one of the lowest anywhere. And what what's happened is because of those investments, we, we have a beautiful place to live. We also have, uh, a lot of big corporations pay a lot of tax that want to be located in Carmel. And I think the state needs to take that approach.
1: Uh, there's so much activity from an economic development standpoint going on in Hamilton County. You look at what's going on in your city of Carmel. You look at, uh, at Fishers and you know, all the development going on there, Westfield and their sports movement. Noblesville has some activity as well. What is it about Hamilton County? Do, do All the mayors, do all you guys get along?
0: We do. We do. We meet periodically, usually over dinner, kick around ideas, try to coordinate things. We try, and there's always a little bit of competition yeah. uh, among cities that are next to each other. But I think every mayor in Hamilton County understands our competition is not in the state of Indiana; it's far afield. and that if we work together, you know, Westfield has focused on uh, children's sports, kids' sports. We focused on the arts. Fishers has spoken uh, on startup uh, tech companies. We've all picked a niche in trying to coordinate those things and not compete against each other very much. And I think that's important.
1: Much more ahead with Carmel Mayor Jim Brainerd. When we return, we'll talk about the early years growing up in northern Indiana uh, and maybe what's next as well. And that's when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. This is Alex Brown. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with Inside Indiana Business Radio on demand. This twice daily podcast features our statewide Inside Indiana Business Radio reports with additional bonus content that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. You can listen now on the podcast page at InsideIndianaBusiness.com or subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Colonel Mayor Jim Brainerd. And uh, uh, Mayor, uh, I want to go back in time uh, to the early years. You're a native Hoosier, and I guess I didn't know that you grew up in northern Indiana, the uh, the town right in the heart of RV country, right? Bristol uh, in northern Indiana?
0: That's right. It's a little town today of about uh, 1,500 people, 10 miles north of Goshen and seven or eight miles east of Elkhart. My dad was from Goshen, and he and my mother met at uh, what was then Georgia Conservatory, and uh, Music Conservatory, now part of Butler. And it used to be down at 14th in Delaware. She's from Central Illinois. And after he he was drafted, uh, he actually played in the uh, 10th Division Army Band for a couple of years in Kansas. Uh-huh. Where I was actually born, but we, we returned to Indiana when I was six weeks old and He was a band director in Elkhart County, both with Bristow and then later Elkhart, his entire career. It was a good place to grow up. I grew up about a two-minute walk from the St. Joseph River, uh, lots of natural glacial lakes up in that area. It was a great little town to grow up in. And like my parents, I matriculated at Butler and then went to law school over in Ohio.
1: Yeah, and obviously the recreational vehicle industry and to this day continues to really Drive that econ- economy. As you grew up, was that just the, the predominant, the dominant industry in that uh, in that area?
0: It was actually trailer factories more. Uh, is, uh-huh. is back in the sixties and seventies. I worked in trailer factories as a kid. Jobs uh-huh. so in college in a tool and 2 and die factory making parts. So it's a lot of uh, part making for uh, auto manufacturers in Detroit because we're fairly close to Detroit on the Indiana Toll Road. They also, you know, Elkhart made about 95% of the school band instruments back in the 60s. Oh,
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh,
0: Miles Labs made one-a-day vitamins back in the 1960s and early 70s, about the only vitamin one could buy. And that was in Elkhart as well. But the uh, mobile homes uh, were were always a big part of the economy there. And then later RVs and van conversions. And it's a very entrepreneurial area. But a good area to grow up into, you had the influence of Notre Dame University, not too far away, about 18 miles away, Indiana University at South Bend, as well as Goshen College and some other smaller liberal arts colleges. You know, if you look at the population of St. Joe and Elkhart County, it's bigger than Allen County the last time I looked. So it's mm, one of yeah. the larger population centers in the state, too. And I think we sometimes forget that down here in central Indiana.
1: So you went to Butler uh, for your undergraduate uh, degree. Did you consider any other schools or the fact that your 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 folks went to Butler, did that that sway you and you were always going to maybe head that direction?
0: You know, I don't think my parents gave me much of a choice. They, they said, this is where you're going. <laughs> and, you know, it was a different time back then, you know, with my kids, you know, we looked at dozens of colleges and had a three-year discussion about what would be best, but, you know, good students and good teachers can learn and teach anywhere and I certainly had a great experience at Butler as a history and speech major and, and uh, had some tremendous teachers. And you always wonder how you're going to do when you get out in the wider world. But then I was in grad school and so we're in England for a while and I had folks from the Ivy League sitting next to me. And I thought I can compete just fine with these. Yeah. People.
1: Yeah. Um, and you went to law school. Uh, was it uh, Ohio Northern? Yes. What did, did, you, did you always have designs? Did you want to be an attorney or where? how that uh, how'd that all play out?
0: My parents were musicians, so I thought about going that route for a period of time. My first couple of years of college, played in the orchestra.
1: What would what, you play? What do you play? French
0: horn. I'm a French horn player. I okay. still play occasionally. I'm going to play with the symphony next year in Carmel.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: But um, I thought about that. I was competitive when I was in high school and college, but decided that it would be a lot more fun to do that as an avocation than trying to make a living at it.
1: Yeah, yeah. What steered you toward politics? What was that first uh, entree into uh, the political arena?
0: I got interested in high school. You know, the Vietnam War was on. I I think that got a lot of people's attention. Nixon was running in 72, and it was the year I turned 18. And 18-year-olds, for the first time ever, were allowed to vote. So I got involved uh, helping uh, the Republican Party in that election, And then in college, got a job working for a guy named Bill Hudnett in 1974, (laughs) between my sophomore and junior years, when he was uh, uh, running for re-election to the U.S. Congress, the U.S. House of Representatives against Andy Jacob. Mm -hmm. I still remember that. I was working in the headquarters as a 19 or probably 20-year-old at that point. And and Jacob would show up in this old jalopy car that he drove around. And Hudnett would walk out of the campaign headquarters, and they'd go to their joint debates together.
1: Together, really? Yeah.
0: They were friends, they were friendly, and they got to be even better friends after, you know, in 72, when Nixon won his landslide, not won the 11th district, and then in 74, in the middle of Watergate, he lost, he won by half a percent and lost by half a percent. And it was both of them, both times, they respected each other. You know, back then, it was different. You yeah, know, you yeah. might have different ideas about the direction the country should go in, but because you had a different idea, it didn't make you a bad person. Today, I'm afraid we've lost some of that. You know, you disagree with me, you're a terrible person. We need yeah. to we need to get past that and uh, recognize that there's a lot of human diversity and a lot of people have different ideas about how to move ahead and not hate each other if someone disagrees.
1: What what what, what has to happen? I mean, every, a lot of people talk about that. It, that, that we as a nation politically and otherwise have become, and I think social media plays into that certainly, it's so, so divisive, so, uh, again, uh, hateful. And, and as you suggest, you have a different idea or a different perspective. It's not that you're, you're wrong, you're bad. How do you see the pendulum swinging back?
0: Part of it, I think, goes back to that Supreme Court case called Citizens United that allows so much money to go into the election system, that there's a whole class of people that make their living off keeping people mad at each other. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to see that change. That, That was the case. You may remember it. So, well, corporation is a person for political contribution purposes. Now they are for a lot of other purposes. You have to know who to sue or as a corporation. So it's treated like a person, but for years we didn't have that, but there's way too much money in the system. Number one. And number two it's going to take leadership. It's going to be people like you and me saying, stop it. Don't do mm-hmm. that anymore. And if enough people, you know, this is a representative government, if enough people in this country say, we don't like the way it's going, we, we want to be more civil to each other, we can make a difference.
1: Yeah, Mayor, you've got uh, certainly got some months left, some time left in office. What um, are there are things you'd like to accomplish uh, before you actually uh, uh, you know step away?
0: Oh, we have a long list of things we're working on you know and it, it, it's a bit refreshing to me too because usually it's work for three years campaign for a year then work for three more years then campaign. Yeah. <laughs> and this time i just get to keep working on on uh, what i really like but i've never enjoyed campaigning so it's a bit of freedom too and and um it's also a freedom you know somebody comes up with something really stupid i can say <laughs> I, I don't have to be as nice as I used to be. Still yeah, technical, yeah. not nice.
1: <laughs> what, okay, what's the big question? I know a lot of people are probably wondering and probably asking you, but what's next? What uh, What kinds of things? Uh, you obviously have a lot of energy and ideas uh, uh, left. What uh, What are you thinking about for that next chapter?
0: Well, I've got a book I've been working on for some time, never quite seemed to. I did one coffee table book years ago but, about Carmel, but I've got a couple about city planning that in different stages and I'd like to finish those up a lot of other cities have reached out and said, will you help us with some strategic planning as a consultant and I think that hopefully we can take some of the lessons that uh, we've learned in Carmel and help some other places I I have four children and and only one of them lives here I've got one in California one in North Carolina and one in uh, Boston and so you got to get
1: them to come back
0: I'm working on that uh (laughs) It's a big world out there, and they've got, uh, they're out there trying to conquer conquer yeah. in their early 30s and 20s. I like to I love to snow ski. So I, uh, as my patient, I intend to spend a lot more time in the winter sliding down mountains.
1: Uh huh. Very good. Are you finished with politics, do you think, or politics still might be in your future?
0: Oh, I don't anticipate ever running for another office again. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can be helpful to people, I can be helpful to whoever the next mayor of Carmel is. I'll always be there to. Help do that, but uh, I don't. Uh, I'll be sixty-nine, and and um, it's a good time to to uh, try some other things. You know, I look back at Senator Lugar, who I greatly admired for many years, worked for, and yeah, you know, I wish he had retired after that next-to-last election when he won hmm. over eighty percent in the general election, and yeah. and uh, instead of getting thrown out in that uh, nutty primary race. Thinking about that story was helped me make my decision too. I thought, you know, we've done a lot in Carmel. It's an intense job, uh, a lot of hours, but but uh, there's a lot of intensity that's required yeah. as well. And 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 I'm I'm ready for to try some other things.
1: Well, we look forward to following your next chapter, Carmel Mayor Jim Brainerd, uh, seven terms uh, in the office, and really has uh, championed uh, enormous change. Uh, in Carmel uh, in so many ways. And Mayor, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, stop by on the podcast and good luck in whatever's next.
0: It's great to be with you, Gary.
1: All right. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get the latest in Indiana business news 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.